0: When I first graduated from college, I got hired part-time at the church that we were members at. But it paid the pay covered our rent, so I needed to find a full-time job. In that time, the economy wasn't really doing well and getting work was not easy. And if you know me, I'm not a I can be kind of awkward at times. So I don't interview very well. So I was applying job after job after job, and I finally got one interview, and I went in so nervous. I was so uptight in my own head. I have no idea what I said to their questions, but it didn't make sense apparently because I didn't get the job. And I'm, I mean, we're like about to get married. I need a job. So a lady from our church calls me. She's like, I'm the executive manager of a retirement home, and I need an operations manager. The job is yours. Just come physically show up with a pulse to an interview, and the job is yours. So I walk in, I was like, I am not qualified for this job. But I came in with confidence, because somebody told me the job is yours. Just show up and say something. So I came in, and I was just relaxed. It was unusual for me, quick on my feet. I walked out thinking, I'm qualified, I convinced myself, but the difference, walking in with no confidence, no assurance, affected the way that I interacted, but walking in with true confidence and assurance to the other interview, I was a different person, it had practical implications for how I did the interview, say, what does this have to do with anything? The level of confidence we have in our relationship with God is similar. If we know, I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of God, that changes the way we live. The level of confidence we have in the relationship affects our day-to-day. If we're always wondering, am I really a, a son, am I really a daughter? doesn't mean we're not if we wrestle with those things, but it does affect our day-to-day. In the same way. So John is going to write to us at the end of his letter about the confidence we can have in our relationship with the Lord himself. So 1st John chapter 5 verse 13 through 21. 1st John 5 13 through 21. <clears throat> I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. There's a lot to unpack in this passage. Uh, But if we were to summarize kind of the big picture of this text, it would be this. Know that in Christ you have eternal life and all of its advantages. Know that in Christ you have eternal life and all of its advantages. We're going to look at five things today. And the first one is going to be kind of a statement of assurance. And the next four will be those advantages that come from knowing you have life. So the first... Know you have eternal life in verse 13. Know you have eternal life in verse 13. Secondly, know he hears and answers prayer in verse 14 through 17. Third, know you have spiritual protection in verse 18. Any guess what the next one starts with? Know you are his in verse 19. And lastly, know the true God. Verse 20 and 21. Normally I try one or two points, but there's five five points today. They won't all equally be the same amount of time. Before we jump into verse 13, though, it's it's important that we remind ourselves of where we've been. 1 John is written to Christians who are being assaulted by false teaching. People have left the faith and are saying... Who you think Jesus is isn't who he really is. And maybe if you believe in that Jesus that we started out with, you don't have real spiritual life. So John has been writing to reassure these Christians, we believe in the true Christ. God come in the flesh. Jesus is who we have been preaching the whole time. And those who who are calling into question the sincerity of your faith, and the sincerity of the life that you have in Him, they're the ones who are false. You you have life. You have life. And this is what it looks like. Love your brother and sister in Christ. Walk in holiness. And hold to the truth. Last week we ended with this wonderful section on eternal life. Eternal life is found only in Jesus And those who believe in Jesus have life the moment they believe. That's what he's told us. And now we come to verse 13. So verse 13, first point, know that you have eternal life. He says in verse 13, I write these things to you. Now when he says I write these things, he's referring to the whole book. He's concluding the book. He's summarizing everything I've just said, all that I've just written to you. All this stuff about Jesus being the one who forgives sins. All of the stuff I've said about if you confess your sin, He forgives your sin. All this stuff I've said about Jesus being the advocate who's pleading for you before the Father. All that I've said about Jesus coming to die, to bear God's justice in your place. All that I've said about the God in heaven who is love, And all that I've said about what it looks like to actually believe Jesus, the the loving brother and sister, the, the walking in holiness and walking in truth, all these things I've written to you. Why? So that those who are believing in the name of the Son of God may know they have eternal life. Miss Willie read for us a moment ago the end of John's Gospel where he's just presented this case that Jesus is the Messiah. And the purpose of John's gospel, those verses she read, was that knowing that he's the Messiah, you would believe in him and have life. Now, notice the difference. It's subtle, but there's a difference. It's not, he's not here pleading, believe in him to get life. In John's letter, what he's saying is, those who have believed, I'm writing so that you know that you have life. He's not writing to the unbeliever to say, believe in Jesus so you have life. He's writing to the Christian who's been assaulted by false teachers saying, you don't have life in this Jesus you believe in. He's writing to us to give us assurance that we have life. He's writing to you, if you've trusted in Jesus, so that you know, so that you have confidence, so that you have assurance that when I believed in Jesus, I have life. Life. So he's writing to the Christian who's believed in Christ. As we said last week, this eternal life in John's gospel is is shorthand for you are right with God. You know God. You're in fellowship with God. He's writing to give the believer confidence they're in right standing with the Father. I write these things to you who have believed that you may know that you have eternal life. We're not going to do everything we've done throughout the book. We've talked about aspects of assurance, but just just to recap a couple for our own memory. First, we see in, in 1 John assurance or confidence in our relationship with God is a knowing thing, not a feeling thing. The word he used here is no. The word he used in chapter 3 and in chapter 2 when we looked at it was no. There are times I wonder and I've wrestled with in seasons of my life when I look at my sin and say, how can I be saved? Certainly don't feel like this is what a Christian does. And John's not writing to us saying, I write these things so that you feel. He says, I write these things that you may know. There is truth in the Bible all over its pages that Jesus Christ is a trustworthy Savior. He is who He says He is. He died on a cross bearing your guilt, bearing God's justice for your guilt, and He rose from the grave and He offers life to any who come and believe. And what He's saying is, Yeah, there may be times where you don't feel this or that, but guess what? He does save. Why? Because he says he does. There are facts in the Bible. You place faith in Jesus, abandon hope in yourself, and put all your hope in Jesus, and he says you have life. That's objective facts. They're, They're not subjective. You know what the difference between objective and subjective is? Objective is there are facts, known facts, Subjective is our perception of things, sometimes how we feel. John's writing this, you can objectively know. You can objectively know you have life. How? By believing in the Son. By believing in the Son, who in chapter 1 says, if anyone sins and confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. We objectively have in chapter two one who is, we looked at that big word, propitiation, meaning he satisfies God's wrath, and he's interceding for us, advocating for us. That's a fact. I trust Jesus, and when I sin, and Satan throws it in my face, and and my own flesh comes up and says, you are guilty, I can say, yes, I am. But I have one pleading my cause in heaven who says, look at my scars, look at my righteousness. I've paid it all for them. You can know you have eternal life. One other thing we see here is that about assurance, it's it's not based on feeling, it's based on fact. Second thing is 1 John tells us that assurance is obtainable but not guaranteed. There will be seasons. He's writing this here in verse 13 to people who are doubting because they've been told, you're believing in the wrong Jesus, therefore you don't have life. And he's writing to people who probably are doubting to give them assurance. So the the presence of doubts doesn't mean you are not saved. But John does tell us you can know and it's worth pursuing that kind of assurance. We'll see why in a moment. So it's, it's, it's not promised, but it is held out as attainable and valuable to know you have eternal life. And the third thing we looked at when we talked about assurance throughout John's gospel is there is a balance. There is the objective. I have trusted in Jesus. You want to know why I'm going to heaven? It's not because I don't sin a lot anymore. Well, that's not what John says. When he says the Christian doesn't sin, we've we've, we've got to talk about that in a moment. But he's not saying, hey, if you don't sin a lot anymore, now you're going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus bled and died for my sins and rose from the grave. I know I'm going to heaven because though I'm guilty, he lived a perfect life and credits that to me by faith. That's where we stand with him. But First John gives us the other balance of examine ourselves. If you have trusted Jesus, it has a look. And he gives us these three tests throughout the, the letter that we've looked at over and over and over with that repetition. If you are in Christ, who you are trusting in Jesus, it will show up in love for other Christians. Well, he says over and over. If you love the brothers and sisters, that's proof that you have life because he's changed our hearts to love what he loves. The second thing that he he tells us, if if we don't have a a pattern of sin, Christians who've been changed, who believed in Jesus, are not sinless, but they're not under sin's grip any longer. Third, he says, do you believe in the same Jesus that he's preached? Do you hold the truth about Jesus? And, And John gives us those so we can examine ourselves and say, are these things in my life? But here's the balance. You will look at these three tests and find yourself to be wanting over and over again. You will find, I don't perfectly love my brothers and sisters. There's people who rub me the wrong way that are hard to love. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? There is sin in my life. He says that anyone born of God does not keep on sinning, and I say, I keep on sinning sometimes. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? things that I have believed over my Christian life that I'm like, oh, that's not true. I shouldn't believe that. Does that mean I wasn't a Christian? So so we examine ourselves, but when we examine ourselves, we don't stay there with the the microscope on ourselves. We shine the light of the Word of God in our lives to say, am I in the truth? But where we find ourselves wanting, we immediately turn our eyes to Christ and come to Him and say, Lord, I, I find myself wanting I find myself in need of grace. I find myself in need of mercy. And you say you're gracious and merciful. Forgive me. Lord, I am not perfect as a Christian. Therefore, I need a perfect Savior. And you've provided one. I look to Christ. I look to Christ. So the balance, we examine ourselves. But when we examine ourselves, we then look to Jesus, who is where our hope is found. I think that's how we get eternal life, or that's how we get assurance, is we examine ourselves honestly in light of the Word of God. And when we see these faults and failures, we then look to Christ. We look to Christ. We look to Christ. Robert Murray McShane's quote sticks with me For every thought of self, have two thoughts of Christ. Man, look at me. Okay, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is perfect. I go to heaven because of Jesus. I know I'm in Christ as I examine my life. So, first point is really a statement of, of kind of fact. You can know you have eternal life. But just like me walking into a job interview with kind of two different outlooks, one having no idea whether or not I'd get this job and completely botching it, and the other one coming in with that confidence and, and being more loose and saying some semi-coherent things, the Christian who knows there's implications, there's advantages. And now the next four things we're going to look at are those advantages of knowing. The first thing, we can know that God hears and answers prayer. See verse 14? And this is the confidence we have towards him. This flows out of our knowing. First, I just want to say this before we keep going. If we just read this, it seems like we have a bunch of random ideas that have no connecting thought. He goes from, know you have eternal life, to prayer, to to you don't keep on sinning, to you got, you know, you are of God, not of the world, and then you know God, and you're like, what is he talking? It's just a bunch of randomness. There is a connecting thought. You know you have eternal life, and here's the benefits. Here's the benefits. So first benefit, you know he hears and answers prayer. This is the confidence we have before him, or in his presence, Scripture presents God as a consuming fire. To be in his presence is terrifying if you don't know you're a son or daughter. But knowing that you have eternal life, that you are a son or daughter, it gives you confidence to be in his presence. When I was a teenager, I knew that my dad loved me. I knew I was his son. So I could come up and say, I would like to borrow your car tonight. If I didn't know that this is my dad who loves me, I certainly wouldn't just come up to some stranger and say, hey, can I borrow your car? I knew my dad loved me. I knew my dad delighted to give me things so I could come up to him when I didn't have a job as a teenager and say, could I have $20? It gave the the relational confidence, knowing that I was his son and he was my dad, he loved me, it gave me boldness to ask for things that I wouldn't ask you for. Right? If I just I didn't know you, I, I wouldn't walk up to Dawson and say, hey, I don't know your name, can I borrow your car? But if I know Dawson, if I know him, I can come up and ask. And I think what he's doing here is the same thing. Knowing you have life, knowing that you are in fellowship with God, that that relationship has been repaired and you know him, allows you to ask, allows you to come before not just the God who's a consuming fire, but the God who is a loving father. And say, your son has come to ask. Your daughter has come to ask. Notice what he says here. And this is the confidence we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We'll get to the according to his will in a moment. But the emphasis of this entire sentence is the word anything. If you were going if I were going to do a bill decker translation which I don't plan to do but this word anything would all be capital The emphasis of his this verse is you can ask anything You can ask for a wide array of things ask anything It's not we get to the according to his will and we feel like it's just been so minimized but the point is that he loves to give liberally to his children who ask if we ask anything according to His will. The stress is on the the fruit of the relational assurance. I come boldly, and I can ask for much. And why? Because we know He hears us. We know that the Father in heaven delights to hear His children. And if He hears us, in verse 15, we know, there's that word again, We know that He will give our request. Now, let's start putting some of the Bible together so that we have this in context. The Bible is where God reveals His will to us, He tells us what He wants us to be like. That is what informs our asking. This verse is saying, I know that on my own I'm a fool and often need wisdom, but the Bible tells me that God is wise, and if I ask, he will give. So guess what I know his will is, for me to have wisdom. So I can come with confidence, Lord, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I need wisdom. With the confidence that he's not an ogre in the sky with a closed fist, but a loving father who will say wisdom. We know it is the will of God, and First Thessalonians says, this is the will of God, your sanctification I can come to him, Father, I'm not perfectly like Jesus. I want you to make me more like Jesus. And I know that's his will. And I can come and ask, Father, would you change me? I know it's his will for me to love others. Father, I struggle to love. I, I struggle not to be selfish. Would you change me? Would you change me? Would you make me more like your son? And we have the confidence that he will answer those requests. We don't, however, know exactly how he will answer those requests. I like to pray, Lord, make me more like Jesus and expect that I'd wake up the next day instantly more like Jesus. There's a song. We don't sing it here. It's an old hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And the the hymn is a long hymn, very long hymn. I think there's like eight stanzas. But he starts out with, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace that more of his salvation know. In some other words, I don't remember them all right now. But then the next line comes, and then the Lord started bringing trials to my life. And I started wondering, is he answering my request? Does he love me? It almost drove me to despair. And by the end of it, he's like, the Lord has brought me low. He's humbled me. He, he's, he's brought me to the place where I find my whole Hope in Him. The Lord answered His prayer, not how we expected. We can ask, Lord, I need this. I know Your Word says You want me to be like this, and He will answer. But often it will not be in a microwave overnight, and it might show up through trials and tribulations. There are also other things in Scripture, we won't go into all of them, but the Lord does also factor in our motives. There are things like, if we regard iniquity in our heart, he may not hear us. We might ask with the wrong motives that we spend on ourselves, and he may not answer. So there are times where the Lord says no. But the general stance of the Father is, you ask according to my will, and I love to give it. is a verse that tells us, you know your relationship with the Lord, you come boldly and ask. One other thing I want to say before we look at verse 16 and 17. Even though we have the guardrail here of asking according to his will, this, doesn't, this isn't a verse that says you can't ask for other things. We can ask for healing, even though the Bible doesn't say the Lord will will healing in every instance. We can ask for, I need a new job. I need a new car. Like It's not like he's saying, don't ever ask those things. We just don't have the confidence that he'll give them all the time. But he does say, come and bring all your requests to me. Bring all your burdens to me. But there are just some things we know from the Bible that he wants us to have all the time. And there are other things that he may say, this isn't good for you. But that doesn't mean his children can't ask for them. Because there are many times he does delight to give those things. Verse 16 and 17. Here's the connection here. We've gone from I can know that I have eternal life through faith in Jesus. That gives me a confidence. I know he hears and answers prayer. And then we get to 16 and 17 and say, how does this fit? I think 16 and 17 is giving us an example of God hearing and answering prayer. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins, that do not lead to death. Obviously, we need to talk about what is a sin unto death and a sin not unto death. But before we get into all the weeds of that, let's just get the clear picture here. There, are in the, there is in the Christian life such relational closeness that we see each other's lives. He's not talking about being the moral police that are like, let me find some dirt in your life. I found a sin. No, But in the, in the context of church life, we will see each other. You will see me sin. I will see you sin. And in the book, he's told us that we're to love one another. And one of the ways that we love one another is that we care about each other's spiritual state. And when we see each other not following Jesus, we pray for one another. And here's the confidence we have, that if we see our brothers or sisters sinning in a way that doesn't lead to death, we know we can pray for them, and the Lord will hear our prayer. Now, what in the world is he talking about with a sin unto death and a sin not unto death? There is a lot of debate about this, and we're not going to go into all the views, but I think the best way to understand it is that it is, has to do with something that's happening in the book. There's a context of the book. In the context of the book, there were many people who started out in the church saying, Jesus, 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 and came to a point where they said, we don't believe that anymore. We are, with eyes wide open, rejecting that now. Oh, and we know that he wants us to live holy, but we are now going to say, we don't care, we can live however we want. And we know that he wants us to love one another, but we don't care, we'll live how we want. I think this has to be something to do, a sin unto death, that's happening in the book. And what John is talking about when he talks about a sin not unto death, and a sin unto death is that there are those who, with eyes wide open, have hardened their heart and said, I don't care about what's true. And proven, according to chapter two, that they were never actually Christians. Therefore, they don't have life. But Christians do sin. We found that in chapter one. If anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. Sin not unto death, I think, is are sins that Christians commit. We commit sin. But we're not in danger of eternal damnation. Why? Because Christ has paid for them. And we've believed in him. And he's washed us. And he's given us life. Oh, and by the way, Christians will respond with repentance. I deal with my sin differently than I did before Jesus. I sin, and sometimes it may take me a while to see it, but I want to confess my sin to the Lord. If I do things wrong this way, I want to confess those and make things right this way. And in that way, it's a sin not leading unto death. It's a repented of, covered by Jesus' blood kind of sin. But there are people who have said, I want nothing to do with that. And it's so hard in their heart, and their sin leads unto eternal death because they've never repented. They're not coming to Christ for mercy. So he's dealing with two different kinds of people. Notice he does not he's very careful in his language when he talks about a sin that leads unto death to not say if a brother or sister commits it. He's talking about two different groups of people, the Christian and the non-Christian. And the confidence we have is when I pray for my brothers and sisters who I, I find in sin, the Lord will hear. And he'll keep them. He'll preserve them. Often he will do it through the prayers of the saints. That might be the means, but he does not bring them to eternal judgment. Verse 17, he wants to clarify. Lest you read this and are like, oh, well, if I'm a Christian, I don't commit the sin unto death. I'm good. It's a license. I can live how I want now. He makes very clear in verse 17 all wrongdoing is sin, it's all a big deal. It it, it all matters. But believers are not in danger of eternal judgment and eternal death because they're in Christ. They have life. So maybe you're sitting here, maybe you were reading this week in verse 16 and 17 saying, What is it, number one? And have I committed it? If you're in Christ, you have life. If you're in Christ, you've not committed the sin unto death. But let me also say, If you would say, I'm not in Christ, this is not a verse that's like you're hopeless. If you turn to Christ, you will have life. If you turn, even if you're like I have with eyes wide open pushed Jesus away for years, his promise is still applicable to you. He will forgive, he will wash, he'll give mercy. All right. So, number 3. Before we there go there, let's recap cuz I know it's a lot. He's given us this verse. I you can know you have life through faith in Jesus. Implication. You can come to the Father with boldness because you know you're his son. You know you're his daughter. He hears and answers prayer. Second advantage is that we can know that we have spiritual protection. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God, everyone who has been born again, everyone who God's God's Spirit has opened their eyes and brought life, does not keep on sinning. the new birth brings new behavior the the new birth being born of God will change me I have a new heart. it doesn't mean that I don't ever sin but the grip of sin is loosed from my life. I, I, I may struggle with sin I may even have areas that are entangling sins but the pattern of sin over my life is is broken. when I became a Christian I went from my mom probably could attest to this, I could invent swear words. Like, I I don't think I made a sentence that didn't have some sort of foul language in it. The moment I became a Christian, every area in my life wasn't cleaned up. But you know what happened that I saw instantly? I started talking differently. And when I didn't speak in ways that honored the Lord, for the first time I started thinking, that's wrong. It bothered me. I asked the Lord for mercy, and he started changing me. I have areas that I sin, but the Lord is changing me. And I think the point is this. It's not that if you're born of God, you never sin. Like how Christians reach a sinless perfection. But sin is loosened, and we grow more and more like Christ. Well, how does that happen? Verse 18 continues. But he who was born of God protects him. The second part here is a reference to Jesus. He changes the tense. It's not he who has been. He moves to he who was born of God. We who are sons and daughters by adoption made God's children. Jesus, the one born of God by nature, the very nature of God, the eternal son does what? He protects us. He keeps us. Throughout the the New Testament, we find that Christians' protection is found not in themselves, but in Christ. He is the one who keeps us in the book of Jude. He is the one who holds us in his hand in John 10. He is the one who guards us in 1 Peter 1, verse 4. He he is the one protecting us. Why is it that we, we don't sin or have a broken pattern of sin or are growing in Christlikeness? It's because the Son preserves us see what he's doing in the context? He, he in verse 18, is saying, if you think I'm talking about you doing the sin unto death, I'm not talking about you, because Jesus protects you. He holds you. He guards you. He's giving us this great confidence. You can know that you have protection. From who? From what? Verse 18 continues. From the evil one. He doesn't touch us. Western culture has become so scientific, proven facts that we have so de-emphasized the spiritual world. Everything we need to have has some sort of scientific proof behind it. The Bible knows and emphasizes that there is an unseen world you can't put a microscope to. You have a real enemy. You have a real Devil in the world who, if you are a child of God, hates your soul and seeks to do you harm and seeks to devour you. That's scary. This verse is good news for us. He protects us from the evil one. He guards us. He keeps us. I don't even know what I go through in a day that that Jesus has protected me from. But this verse gives us confidence. I am born of God. Therefore, Jesus protects me. You, if you have trusted Jesus, are born of God, and Jesus protects you. Before we look at the next verse, just want to clarify. clarify. This doesn't always mean physical protection. He spiritually keeps you. In John 6, he says, All the Father has given me, I will keep. This is the will of God, that I lose none that the Father has given me. Jesus always does the Father's will. He keeps us. Christians have been martyred throughout the church history. And I think I couldn't find the name of the actual martyr, but this quote has stuck with me. I think it, it emphasizes what Jesus is doing here. Right before this Christian goes to be beheaded, he makes this statement, or she, I can't remember who. You may sever my head from my body, but you can never sever me from my head, which is Christ. The point was this, you may literally sever one part of my body from the other, but I have been so kept by Christ that you can never remove me from my spiritual head, which is Christ. He keeps me. He protects me. Christian, this verse is not saying that we will always have physical safety. It is saying that you are safe in his hand, that you are guarded by the Savior, that he keeps you. He won't lose you. And the evil one may assault you, but you have one far greater who has overcome the world. We found that in this verse. Jesus overcomes the world. He dies for our sin, defeating death and sin and Satan, rising victorious from the grave, and he gives us that overcoming victory by faith. You can never lose that. The victory you have in Christ is kept, not by your performance, not by your moralism, but by Christ's strong hand, where it is absolutely safe. So you can know you have eternal life. You can know that God hears and answers prayer if you know you're his son or daughter. You can know if you're his son or daughter that you are safe with him. He protects you. And number four, verse 19, we can know whose we are. Verse 19, I I, I believe, is all about our identity, we know we are. Notice that it's a statement of who you are. You are from God. You and I who once were part of the world, doing that which is loving in the world, loving ourselves, have been transferred out of that kingdom and into God's kingdom. We have, been, we have gone from under Satan's authority and power to having a new father. And that defines who we are. Who we are is defined by whose we are. We are God's. You are a child of God by faith. You have a new father by faith. You are God's. That's who you are. He's telling us this statement of our identity. And who we are is having our identity settled is so important because who we are dictates what we do. It's not the other way around. What I do dictates who I am. No. No who you are, then out of that flows what you, do. you are God's. You've been born of Him. He is spiritually your Father. And now the flip. The world lies under the power of the evil one. The world, which we found in chapter 2, is that, that, that system that is opposed to God, opposed to His truth, opposed to His people, doing that which is pleasing in their own eyes, here we find is under the sway, under the authority, under the, under the power of the evil one, of Satan. And what John does in verse 19, it says you're either under God's authority and you are his, or you're under Satan's authority and you're his. Both are an identity thing. You're either a child of God or Ephesians 2 tells us a child of the devil. One or the other. He gives no neutrality, no middle ground. Here, he's telling us, whose are you? And how do you know whose you are? All to do with what we do with Jesus. He's presented to us as a loving Savior. One who gives eternal life. And either we've believed upon him, and we are gods. Or we've rejected him, and we're not gods. Our identity is found in whose we are. Maybe you're sitting here and you say, I've never trusted Jesus. I I don't believe in him. The good news is this. Jesus gave us this promise. Any who come to me, I will never cast out. If you come, you can come. Believe upon him. Cast aside hope in yourself, hope in others, hope in the world, and trust in him, and you will be his. And all the benefits, being able to approach him in faith and prayer, uh, being able to to know that you're spiritually protected for that last day and even for today, all of that's yours. But you you have to believe upon him, go from being part of the world to being in Christ. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Ephesians will tell us, in different words, of identity, You once were darkness, and now you are light. And that's what he's saying here. Which one are you? Lastly, we can know the true God. So we can know we have eternal life. We can know that he hears and answers prayer. We can know that he spiritually protects us. We can know whose we are. In verse 20, we can know the true God. And we know, verse 20 that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. This is something we've seen in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Son of God has come to do what? Make the Father known, to reveal who God is to us. Jesus comes to the world, and he's God veiled in human flesh. And, And as he walks and teaches and lives, he's revealing who the Father is to us. We see the Father's loving heart. We see his mercy and compassion. In Jesus, we see his holiness and justice in Jesus. We see his truthfulness in Jesus. He's made God known. He's made God noble. He's brought understanding. But that making God known is not just so you can say, I know who God is. It's so that you can know him. Verse 20, when he says, he has given us understanding so that we may know him, the word changes there. It's not a fact. It's a relational knowledge. Jesus has made the Father known for this purpose, that you might relationally know the true God. This is the illustration I would use in this, is there is a difference between me knowing my wife and a doctor knowing my wife. My wife could walk into a doctor's office, and the doctor could tell her hair color, her eye color, her height, her weight, her blood pressure, which probably tell quite a bit about what kind of ailment she has, I know my wife. I know her. I know all of her favorite colors, foods, movies, music, all of that. I know when I walk in the door, whether she had a good day or a bad day, by the look on her face. I know what makes her happy. I know what makes her mad. I know my wife. This word, that you may know him who is true, is that kind of knowledge is I don't just know about him being loving, I know his love. I don't just know about him being wise, I know his wisdom. I don't just know that he's faith about him being faithful, I know he's faithful. I know him. Jesus has come. And one of the benefits of knowing we have eternal life is knowing the Father. I know God. I'm in relationship with God. He has made him known so that I can now relationally know him. That is good news. You and I, sinful creatures, through Jesus Christ, can relationally know the creator of the entire universe. You can have relationship, intimate knowledge, fellowship with the one who created all of this universe that our Most recent uh, telescopes and things are just getting glimpses of. The one who made all that stuff, you can know, wants you to know him, and you can through Jesus. That's amazing. And he continues, in his son, Jesus, he is the true God in eternal life. word true here has the idea not just of true facts, but of real, genuine. He's the real God. And now contrast verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Since we know the true God, we can stay away from false gods. Since we know who he is, we don't need to fellowship and and cling to things that are not really God. Think about what we have found in 1 John, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. If you don't believe that Jesus is fully God, yet you worship him, you have an idol because he's just a created being and should not be worshipped. But since he is true God and true man, we worship him, and it's not idolatry. But not just false gods like that, false conceptions of God, but we make all kinds of things into gods. Political saviors, they make terrible gods. Your job makes a terrible god. Your marriage and your children, though they are wonderful things, Make terrible gods. Anything outside of the true God revealed in Jesus Christ is not something that should become an ultimate thing. Good things that become ultimate things ultimately become destructive things because they are not able to hold the weight of our hope, faith, and worship. Here, this verse is saying, We know the true God, therefore we don't worship anything else. John's point is this reject false gods, embrace the true God. So, 1 John 5, 13 through 21, difficult text all over the place, but here's the big idea. You can know you have eternal life through faith in Jesus. You can know that because you have eternal life, you can come to God boldly in prayer. You who sit here, me who's here talking, We can talk to God and he listens and cares and loves to answer. We can know that even though we live in a world filled with spiritual danger, we are kept safe because we have eternal life and he won't take it away. We can know that we are gods in a world that's going to say, you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. No, ultimately, I'm a child of the King. And I can know that I am worshiping the true God because he's made himself known in Jesus. Therefore, anything else, though even though they're good things, are not to be worshiped. We know the true God. So as we close this book out, do you know? Do you know you have eternal life? Do you know the true God in Jesus? Do you know that you have access to him in prayer? Do you know that he keeps you? You can know. Have your eyes set on Christ and don't ever take them off Him. He keeps you. He loves you. And that will change us into loving each other. That will change us into more holy people. And that will change us into being people who cling to that truth. Keep our eyes on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to You. We thank You for the book of 1 John. We thank you for how you have made yourself known to us in this book. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be people who know we're yours and enjoy all the benefits, all the advantages that you give us as your children. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.